Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we aim to explore the science of crime and the practical application of the science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners, as well as other professionals. We would like to thank Bosch for making this episode possible. Use Bosch Camera's onboard intelligent video analytics to quickly locate important recorded incidents or events. Bosch's forensic search saves you time and money by searching through hours or days of video within minutes to find and collect video evidence. Learn more about intelligent video analytics from Bosch in Zones 1-4 through of LPRC's Zones of Influence by visiting Bosch online at BoschSecurity.com. All right, welcome everybody to another episode of Crime Science, the podcast from LPRC, uh, broadcasting from Gainesville, Florida. Um, Today what we want to do is uh, do our usual weekly uh, roundup and um, talk about what we're seeing and what we're doing to support uh, the retail community um, and specifically via the LPRC community. So we know that uh, reopening continues. Uh, there's been some retrenchment uh, due to uh, the anticipated increase in infections. Um, I know there's a lot of close monitoring to understand uh, what percentage of those infections uh, that are being detected are uh, going to end up in serious disease um, are they going to end up in hospitalization? Possibly. Are they going to even go further, say, to ICU or, or tragically even further? And we all know that there are a lot of lags. Um, it can take a few days to a couple of weeks, at least, as our understanding from the science, to uh, actually become infected, to at some point potentially uh, display symptoms, uh, I guess, during the pre-symptomatic or phase or when you are asymptomatic but are still shedding virus is a still a, pu- a puzzle and a concern uh, for many out there. And I think more of us as, as the um, virus spreads um, are, are starting to hear anecdotally from friends or relatives a little bit about the disease in addition to the news reporting and uh, websites and things that we're able to go to for the CDC or the NIH. Um, so very interesting. I think the main thing here is uh, always, 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 uh, as we want to reopen and reemploy, people need to to go and earn a living and support their themselves and their families. Um, is safety and confidence? I think safety and confidence are interlinked, critically linked, and so everything we knew from really day one, when most of us became aware and cognizant of of this COVID nineteen coming from SARS CoV two, was. Um, how do we do that? How do we prevent? Um, and then secondarily, how is it, how is the disease treated? Um, uh, but preventing, I think it's the same thing we've always known is blocking the spread. And we know how it spread comes out of us. Uh, and it normally goes into the air and goes to somebody else. Uh, or it could go on our hands or on a surface. So we understand blocking. We understand distancing. We understand cleaning. So um, if we're just working on blocking, distancing, and cleaning, it seems that that has a major effect. Um, before we tried the distancing through everybody uh, kind of going into isolation, quarantine, holding up, if you will, um, seemed to have a great effect on creating that distance. Uh, we now know that by blocking via masks that we're trying to reduce the intimidation of those that might be vulnerable or scared um, and are not going to go into a place of business or around a place of business, uh, or even some cases go outside. So we know reducing intimidation by blocking uh, via mask is important for our cells, but uh, even more critically for our fellow humankind. So uh, distancing, the same thing. Uh, 
And then, of course, continuing good cleaning of our hands and our clothing, but also surfaces, particularly horizontal, but also vertical surfaces. So um, treating, we understand right now, um, there are 55 uh, US NIH or otherwise funded uh, COVID-19 studies uh, currently underway at different phases, um, including multiple vaccines. But a lot of these are therapies and uh, for those that are treated uh, who are not vaccinated later down the road, but have got the disease. Um, globally, we understand there are close to 1,800 um, COVID-19 uh, studies that are funded and underway with more uh, both U.S. and uh, globally coming online uh, weekly. So there's a lot of our top scientists, physicians, um, entrepreneurs, technologists uh, around the world working day and night on better and better ways to prevent and treat uh, COVID-19. And, and that also prepares us for the future with other pathogens that are inevitably going to come out. Um, so at the LPRC, we continue to update our COVID-19 landing page. We want to make sure that everybody understands, uh, has the resources that they need uh, to reestablish safety, uh, reestablish confidence by establishing better uh, and, and uh, more safety around their entire enterprise, but particularly where there's that interface. Um, so we're excited to continue to support the LPRC community that way. Uh, we also continue on uh, deterrence and disruption um, research uh, for offenders. You all know that's really our mainstay, uh, what we've done for 20 years now, and that is uh, trying to work on establishing uh, a perception of control um, in a location that this is not a vulnerable place to commit a crime, uh, whether it's uh, victimizing another individual or a place. Um, so we've got multiple studies underway on uh, increasing perceived control at different uh, perception points before you enter the parking lot, in the parking lot, approaching the entryway um, as we approach and are inside the interior, as we come up to sp specific places like high-risk, high-loss merchandise um, to self-checkout um, and other locations. So that uh, offender control um, research continues. Uh, we're working on two different mass studies, um, getting ready to, to initiate a third uh, we continue on the uh, artificial intelligence front by looking at uh, a couple of robotics concepts that are pretty exciting in addition to what we've talked about, about hazard net um, and leveraging uh, existing security infrastructures there to uh, spot and report uh, hazardous behaviors. Uh, so uh, we're excited about all the above. The LPRC, again, we talked about uh, uh, that uh, the 2020 LPRC impact is full go. For the first week in October, the virtual platform, uh, Kevin Tran, our producer, is working away on that. Uh, we're excited to participate in the Global uh, Retail Security Summit um, coming up here shortly, which will also be a great way for us to learn at LPRC about how to put together um, and conduct a virtual summit or, or meeting. Um, we've got um, a couple, 300 people already enrolled in LPRC Impact for 2020, and that's way beyond where we normally are at this time. We're going to have a, a podcast episode coming up with Kenna Carlson, our LPRC research team leader. She's going to talk a little bit about what we're trying to do this year with content, uh, what we'll be talking about, what the sessions will look like, who will be involved in the sessions, um, what research is going to come to the forefront, how we're going to interpret and discuss how to implement that for effect. 
Um, so very excited about uh, LPRC Impact. Uh, for members, um, of course, the Knowledge Center continues to grow with new reports. We just got one in today from the UK on um, victimizing shop employees. Uh, so violence in shops or stores. Um, there's a lot of research going on around the world, uh, and we try and tap in to every bit of that. So what I'd like to do now is, is go over to my colleague and friend, Tony D'Onofrio. Uh, Tony, can you bring us up to speed on what's going on in the U.S. and around the world? Thank you very much, Reed. Uh, today, I'm going to spend a little bit more time on consumer trends because really the consumer is going to bring us out of this crisis in terms of their shopping patterns. So I've been following up on a lot of data in terms of what that data, what they're telling us in terms of their, their specific direction for the retail industry. So this is actually, the first one is actually from MasterCard that they released a brand new report on, uh, on consumer research. So they said that e-commerce sales in 2019 were 11% of total retail sales. That spiked in April, May in 2020 to 22% of total retail sales. The shocker was actually the UK, where in the UK in the same April, May 2020 timeframe, online sales represented 33% of total retail sales. And UK was already a leading market for the world in terms of shifting to online and looks like they're accelerating that trend during COVID-19. 53 billion more was spent in the US online during April, May. Nine billion of that was for um, home improvement. So we're all fixing a lot of houses right now. More money was spent online in April, May than the last 12 Cyber Mondays combined. And uh, just to uh, see that that trend is actually global, for, for April, May, for just April 2020, Canada had e-commerce sales going up 112%, while total retail sales were down four. UK had e-commerce overall going up 64%, and total retail was down eight. US had e-commerce sales up 63, total retail down 15, and Brazil had e-commerce uh, up 41%, and total retail sales down uh, 19%. Also of interest from MasterCard is what consumers will miss are missing right now from COVID-19. So eating out was number one, 28%. Traveling was number two, 19%. Uh, tide was out of, out of home leisure activities, 19%. Shopping was only 13%. Social events, 12 And going to work, 11%. And what do consumers think will stay after COVID is over? So number one is hygiene focus, 77%, contactless payment, 69%, connecting virtually, 64%, struggling economy, 64%, and more creative activities at home, 61%, and working remotely more, 60%. So those are some of the consumer trends from MasterCard. I've also been tracking a lot how consumers are changing where they shop. And I think one of the potential that COVID-19 will create is new channels, and one of those new channels is gonna be uh, where consumer manu manufacturer, consumer product manufacturers are actually gonna be channels directly for retail. And that's being reflected by all of them actually having increased in uh, online sales. So General Mills, online sales grew 250% uh, with, with the segment now representing 9% of their total sales. Unilever, online sales grew 36%, and now they're at 7% of their total sales. 
PepsiCo launched two sites for you to buy your snacks and your soda directly from PepsiCo. Uh, Nestle and Heinz are also doing the same. So are we headed down a path where a new retail channel is emerging and the com uh, big consumer product manufacturers are going to be that channel? So that will be one interesting to watch. An additional survey that was interesting this week is the hoarding that we've been doing of some of the goods like uh, toilet paper. And uh, we actually stopping now that stores are reopened and a new PWC survey actually says that we're actually not. Um, all respondents loaded up, continue to load up more than normal. This includes 47% of this slightly when 39% of loaded more than normal and 14% Related substantially more than, than Sorvo. In the latest survey, 64% of the respondents plan to continue this higher loading platform, which, which is good news, especially for grocery stores. And really, they really don't see stopping the hoarding until we get to COVID 19 fully resolved. The other sign that was interesting that they're watching out for is are the stores fully restocked? If they see a lot of empty shelves, it's a trigger to go buy more or the hoarded goods that they think they might run out of. Uh, one in five will stop hoarding and 14% will, will until they see basically when the mandates to, um, to cease uh, shopping or, or rest, stay at home stops. That's when they'll stop hoarding. So interesting data in terms of how the consumers continue to actually uh, buy goods that a lot of stores actually are, have a lot more of. Uh, also, a new new this just this past week is a new YouGov survey in terms of uh, how comfortable are consumers in terms of their shopping experiences. So, 71% would not feel very comfortable shopping in a physical store in the next three months. 80% would feel somewhat to very uncomfortable eating out in a restaurant, 79% will feel somewhat to very uncomfortable staying in a hotel, and 63% will not feel very comfortable returning to the workplace. And 53% send seeing visible uh, display of safety lists and completion of those safety lists would increase their trust in actually walking into that business. And I'm going to end on some positive, uh, really Harvard, uh, a new Harvard Business Review article in terms of how the pandemic is rewriting the rules of retail. And a key message that they drove home is that retailers need to stop expecting business to return to just normal. A new baseline has emerged. To start, retailers have to adapt their brick and mortar stores operation to comply with health and safety regulations. Retailers also need to offer a seamless e-commerce experience. And as a result of COVID-19, all retailers need to make their in-store experiences even more extraordinary than those that they visit, for those that visit in person. So investing in unique digital capabilities, such as real-time inventory management, predictive analytics, AI power search, personalization, and co-creation function all can create completely new and different shopping experiences. This isn't the time for retail to simply ride out the storm. And 
And I bring this up, especially in light of the work that LPRC is doing, especially with the Innovate Center in terms of testing ideas and figuring out what is actually going to work in terms of stores going forward. This is the ideal time to more deeply engage with LPRC on those types of activities to prepare what will be not just for the same normal, for a really a brand new normal that all these consumer trends are telling us. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Tom. Thanks, Tony. Thanks, Reed. Going to just cover a, a couple recent cyber incidents that occurred. And uh, while they don't directly relate to retail, I think you're going to see some correlation and connection. Uh, there's been a, a huge increase in uh, cyber attacks directly related to hospitals and the healthcare system. And uh, there's a whole bunch of publications out there. Bloomberg just actually released a pretty lengthy article on the fact that hackers are taking a targeted approach to hospitals because hospitals have an influx in patients and they're actually taking a very sophisticated approach and following the news to hospitals that are have full capacity and uh, in states that are seeing a little bit of a spike and actually attacking those hospitals, knowing that their resources are strained to uh, both get gather personal information and also be disruptive. Additionally, uh, the Health and Human Services had a state uh, actor attack. Uh, it, they haven't released and probably won't release what what it what state it was, a nation state it was, but they have uh, officially. Uh, announced that they were attacked. They won't uh, say what that attack yielded. But again, all related to COVID-19, really both uh, hackers that are state-sponsored and just financially driven are attacking hospitals because of the change in the infrastructure. Additionally, the same uh, same type of reporting uh, hits on the financial sector. So you know, the America is grappling with this change in the financial sector where people are switching to digital payments at a rapid pace, withdrawing tons of money. So there is this huge influx and attack on the financial sector that's being reported. Um, and very similarly, we're going after banks that are focused on a digital transformation very quickly. Uh, believe it or not, in the United States, there are still a lot of mid-sized, tier-sized banks that their online presence is in the earlier stages of this. Additionally, the U.S. Treasury Department um, actually talked about this uh, about a few weeks ago prior to the stimulus checks coming out and now have come back and a top secret official testified in the Senate Judiciary Committee. You can read about it, but you can't find out who testified that uh, they have pretty reasonable uh, data to support that about $30 billion worth of stimulus funds were likely stolen by criminals by going out and them running through using that information that they're stealing from other places to get this this information. Why is this important to everybody that's listening to this podcast is because there, there are early indications of retailers having similar challenges. The hackers are taking advantage of COVID-19 and looking at hospitals, financial institutions that are going through transitional phases and attacking where there's vulnerabilities, trying to catch people off guard. Um, and this is not um, a prediction. There's actually data support that similar things are occurring in retail. Retailers that had a very strong physical presence that went to an online presence very quickly. Um, uh, retailers that uh, predominantly were public about how they didn't remotely have remote workers are now subject to a greater degree of attack. So uh, while while this comes to be a constant reminder of this, it's important to say that this is uh, up-to-date information. And as the pandemic in some cases is, is 
evolving into the next stage of it. Um, and we're starting to slowly open it in some states and some states rapidly open it and others go back. Um, hackers are actually really taking a lot of time to look at data much like we do to figure out where they're going to make their next attack. And then the nation state sponsored attacks are concerning because as we talked about in the last podcast, you know, the Australia had its biggest nation state attack. We now see the health and human services. Uh, retail is not um, exempt from nation state attacks. A lot of nation state attacks are not just about disruption, but about financial gain and about intellectual property. So uh, definitely a lot of activity on the cyber risk standpoint and the electronic risk standpoint. Um, another early report that uh, I think we'll be reporting on this podcast probably before the masses is there's been a, a pretty significant um, attempt of attacking camera infrastructure throughout the United States. So I think there'll be more to report on that. It's very early. We're seeing chatter on the dark web about um, going after infrastructure specific to to camera and retail. Uh, and this may be around the protests. It's a little early to, to see, but um, there's a lot of talk on the dark web about camera infrastructure and retail. Switching gears to shoplifting and masks, there's been a significant uptick in reported shoplifting instances since stores have opened. New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Florida, there's a, a whole list of states that are uh, listing an increase. Some of this data is anecdotal because there's not a lot of data here, but what it really runs down is there's a couple news publications. ABC News in Los Angeles released it. ABC, another ABC in Philadelphia released it. And in New York, the Post and ABC talked about the increase in shoplifting and the challenge um, that both law enforcement and retailers are having with uh, the masks being worn, people actually, when they're caught shoplifting, saying they have COVID-19. And then now you get into these, uh, you, when you think about hands-off stops, think about a stop when someone tells you they have COVID-19, how do you respond to that? Um, and then additionally, law enforcement response in some of these markets slowed or when they are responding, being challenged with some of the civil disturbance at the same time. So I think uh, it, very early in the podcast, we talked about the potential for this occurring and what occurs when people are wearing masks. But now we're actually starting to see data coming out. And the reason I say it's anecdotal now is because these are news, reported, news reports without a lot of factual data behind them. But the fact of the matter is that there's quite a bit of news reports about it. Uh, and there's quite a bit um, internationally as well. In the UK, there's uh, very similar articles. If you read them, you'd actually... Not you would actually reading the article, you would see that it's exactly the same as the ABC article in Philadelphia, just in the UK, where influx uh, in shoplifting, people wearing masks. Uh, there's chatter uh, about the police not being able to respond, and then when they do respond, having mandates on arrests and having to deal with all those things. So it's just a stark reminder of the importance of really revisiting the policies. I know that. The LPRC has done a lot with best practices around this, but um, I, I hate to use the word new normal. I think it's an overused term, but at this point, we have to start to really look at how we're, gonna, how we're going to deter and stop shoplifting in a world where people will be wearing masks all the time, and then adding that layer in of potentially uh, someone that could really be sick. How do we, how do we maintain um, a presence of asset protection and loss prevention? How do we handle shoplifters? How do we process them? How do we recover our merchandise? And how do we partner with law enforcement uh, 
right now where law enforcement is in a very uh, difficult situation too between uh, civil disturbance and uh, the pandemic issues and all of the other things that are going on. So I'll continue to look at this. I did find uh, two pretty elaborate forms on the dark web about masks and the right way to wear them to, to get around facial recognition and things that should be said when um, people are sh shoplifting, as well as an updated list um, on the dark web of what retailers are have changed their shoplifting pol apprehension policies, which I think is interesting because um, it, there, there's a lot of chatter um, on the dark web about shoplifting, which realistically is not the norm. There isn't as much. I've seen a huge increase about organized retail crime and ways to get around it. So that is not a that is a not a great sign for us because I can tell you that seven months ago I would tell you that shoplifting was minimally talked about on the dark web. Now you have forums where people are saying now is the time to go out and steal. And again, this is an international conversation. It is not just a U.S.-based conversation. So certainly something to keep our eyes on. Uh, and that's all I have for today. Over to you, Reed. All right. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Tony. Um, and, you know, word on some of the items that you both talked about, but it really is a challenging and interesting. I read an article yesterday in The Hill written by um, a colleague at uh, George Mason University, uh, Dr. David Weisberg, uh, who really is one of the world leaders on uh, criminology, but uh, particularly with randomized controlled trial or experimental design. And, uh, but looking at place and crime, which is a huge driver, um, as we all know. So, uh, but his contention in the article, and it was a nice short article I'd recommend anybody that is interested about law enforcement and, and the dilemma that we all see and that those of us that are uh, researchers or practitioners in the private or public sector are dealing with right now and that uh, crime is, has dropped dramatically. We all know this over the last 30 years and has continued to do so until now. But um, that uh, by and large, law enforcement uh, could stand like uh, medicine and any other discipline to continue to improve better models, better data, um, but really uh, more and more rigorous evaluations to help them understand like what, what works better, this, A, B, or C. And then how do we, that's what we do at LPRC, as everybody knows with uh, retail crime control, um, is try and uh, put together logical models, uh, repurpose things, or just try and enhance or even evaluate existing um, to understand what really does, what mechanisms work best to uh, enhance uh, safety and confidence, uh, also enhance protective efficacy that, in other words, convince uh, victimizers not to come to our place or victimize when they are at our place. Um, so and his contention is that, uh, by and large, law enforcement has actually gotten better and better and better at crime suppression or crime uh, reduction, harm reduction, and dramatically so. Uh, and, and there's been a lot of very rigorous uh, randomized controlled experiments around hot spot policing it, it, instead of just driving randomly around or standing on the street corner or waiting in a police station for a call um, that we identify, use data to understand what, where are we having problems in space and time uh, and these things do cluster like everything in life uh, in place and time. Then digging deeper, why? Why this place? Why this time? Why these victims? Why these particular criminal offenders are victimizing these people in, in these specific places at these specific times in these ways? So um, 
So that, that data-driven approach and the evaluation of using that has shown that, um, that people could go to their mailbox, go to the local store more at an increased rate and, and be and feel safer and more confident in doing so. The downside is what we're seeing now and that that means we're, we're going to, in this case, law enforcement is going to saturate those hotspots and do things that the evidence is showing are more effective. You know, just like we do in healthcare and you see right now, they're going to look for hotspots of infections, what occurred there, who was involved, why did this happen, how do we identify people, how do we quarantine those that are infected or been exposed to infected people. Um, you're going to focus on those problems when we go to our doctor. They're looking for issues, not looking, you know, overall, and then they're going to focus on and, and try and do a, a differential diagnosis and dig down. And that's what law enforcement has gotten better and better and better. They're not perfect. They're not even close at doing, but it rubs people raw. Now you're in certain places at certain times. You're being assertive. You're being, you're surveilling. You're actively approaching people that look like they might have firearms or about to commit a crime. All those approaches, those contacts, those engagements, um, create stress and they create situations. And we see in law enforcement, uh, for example, with NYPD, where they've just disbanded their, their street crime units that were very, very effective at removing firearms uh, from people at places and times where, where there was a lot of victimization. Um, those units have been disbanded and put into uniform to reduce tension and conflict um, and so time will tell or rigorous evaluations will help us discern, did that removal to reduce tension uh, increase now the exposure of good people, which is overwhelmingly everybody, um, to more crime victimization? Um, and so that's, I think, a little bit about what you're talking about, Tom, um, as the law enforcement agencies are trying to rapidly adjust. So doc, Dr. Weisberg is saying, look, I think there are two different constructs or concepts here. One is crime control and suppression using evidence-based process to go in, into certain places we, and, and be very effective at reducing victimization um, of the vulnerable. But now, but the separate concept is how do we also positively engage and de, you know, uh, roll back some of the tension and help people understand things that have been suggested or ride-alongs uh, by community leaders and influencers um, going through shoot, don't shoot programs and helping them understand. A lot of us have seen those on TV, for example, where media or uh, specific activists are invited and engage in some of the training um, and understand the split-second decision-making that occurs um, when you're confronting people. Um, and we know the United States last year, 11 million uh, arrests were made. 11 million arrests were made in the United States last year. Uh, we tragically had people killed during those arrests, but that was a thousand people. And you do the math, um, you know, it's not, uh, it's not uh, a situation where that we want, but it's a situation where good crime control results in that. Now we know there are bad actors, there are poorly trained, there are those that don't care, those, those that are stressed out um, and are making uh, bad decisions and so forth. We've got to deal with all those things too. So uh, not getting on the pedestal, but just us as scientists, we're trying to take a step back, remain at that, and and, and not be activists, but be analysts, um, and try and use evidence and take some of the emotion out of it for ourselves as well. We're all concerned. We all have friends 
in these communities or, or uh, we're right next to those communities and things like that. So I want to thank both of you today for uh, uh, illuminating and helping us all better understand some of the fraud risk, uh, understand Tony globally and, and locally what's going on with sales and re-engagement uh, and what are opportunities for all of us to, to help people feel and be safer and more confident. So from Gainesville, I want to thank everybody, Kevin Tran, our producer, Tony D'Onofrio, Tom Meehan from Crime Science. Everybody be safe. Thanks for listening to the Crime Science Podcast presented by the Loss Prevention Research Council and sponsored by Bosch Security. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more Crime Science episodes and valuable information at lpresearch.org. The content provided in the Crime Science Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for legal, financial, or other advice. Views expressed by guests of the Crime Science Podcast are those of the authors and do not reflect the opinions or positions of the Loss Prevention Research Council.